Right, so um, last time we talked about uh, what Judaism is, and today we're going to talk about what God is. Now, it might seem we've done that a bit backwards. Um, certainly, I think God would think so. But actually, as you'll notice from the whole list of topics that are covered over the course of this class, very little of it is what we call theology, i.e. what we mean when we say God. If you were taking a class in Christian basics, 90% of it, or 100% of it, would be theology. What is God? What's the meaning of life? What happens after you die? Questions related to that, broadly called theology. Judaism generally is not that bothered about theology. As you remember from last week, we drew our little five-pointed side with all the things that are needed to make up what Judaism is. One of them wasn't God, right? You can be a completely atheist Jew and still be a completely Jewish person. That has no bearing, really, whatsoever. That's not to say, though, that God hasn't played a big role in the identity and history of Jewish people, and that Judaism isn't still predominantly a spirituality which is focused in some way on a relationship with God. But what we mean when we say God is a little bit fuzzier. So a couple things I want to do tonight, and we have a lot to do in a short period of time, so we'll do our best to try and pack it in. Um, but is to talk about two different things, um, one of which we might call theology, um, and the other is theodicy, um, which are fancy Latin and Greek-derived words for very simple things, which is kind of, what is God and why does evil stuff happen? Right? That's what theodicy means. Both of which are key questions in understanding what Judaism thinks of when we think of God, and many of which you may have heard me talk about before. Um, before we dive into kind of what we mean when we say God from a Jewish point of view, or what I think, by the way, disclaimer, this is purely what I think, and uh, not everyone or no one rather agrees, what do you think of when you say God? When someone says the word God, G-O-D, right, what does that mean? What do you imagine? What comes to mind? Word association. Go. Creator. What'd you say? Creator. Okay. Excellent. So we're going to do a little mind map. Oh, the squeaky one. We're going to do a little mind map here. <laughs> Remind me not to use purple or black. There we go. It's green. God is green today. So creator, that's one thing. Great. What else? Supernatural. Cool. Supernatural. I like that. Omniscience. Um, oh, fancy words. We're getting fancy words here. Omniscience. Yeah, Omniscience. What does that mean, by the way? Knowing all. Very good. Knowing all. We're going to talk more about that. What other attributes? Or also images, right? What is the image of God that comes to mind when you say God? Judge. Church. No, judge. Judge. Sorry, judge. it's the <laughs> Judge. Okay. Right, very good. A judge. Judging people. Part of God's job, for sure. Um, omnipresent is inside and out. Okay, so we got another omni, right? Omni being the Greek prefix for all. Here we have omnipresent, meaning God is everywhere. What's the movie that just won a bunch of awards? Everywhere, all the time, all at once, something like yeah, that? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, haven't seen it, but could be a description of God, right, in many theologies. Okay? There's a sermon in that. We'll come back to that. Um, what else? What do you imagine? Right, I know we're all adults, but often we're children at heart, and when you say God, what do you think of? What's the image that comes to mind? The beard man, which is not... Yeah, my childhood, okay. which is that too. Right. Not that, yeah. Beardy. Yeah. Right. Beardy. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. That's yeah, great. Very good, right? That's, that's what's instilled. Many people, when you say the word God, think of, can't help it, right? Immediately, your first thought is an old man, beardy, 
Some kind of floating sky chair, maybe. Clouds. Yeah, clouds, right? Yeah. Clouds. White, white robe. Clouds. <laughs> Someone hair. wants to draw that. White yeah. robe. Yeah. Right, this is what I call the Children's Illustrated Bible version of God. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, a Jewish Children's Illustrated Bible won't have any of that <laughs> stuff, but it's so pervasive in society thanks to Christian Illustrated Children's Bibles that it's hard to escape, right? Mm-hmm. Film, movies, television. One thing I was going to say, if I can add one, actually, is Morgan Freeman. Oh, yeah. Right? Love Morgan Freeman. How many movies now has Morgan Freeman played the role of God? So mighty. Yeah, so many of them. Yeah. Someday, some scholar might look back at our ancient history and think that we had a religion that worshipped Morgan Freeman. Because like, all they're going to see is God and Morgan Freeman in like 12 movies and think there was a cult based around Morgan Freeman. That's how often these things get distorted. You look back at the past. Okay? So, by the way, that's kind of part of this whole beardy sky cloud thing. It's just meant to be a more <laughs> modern version of that. But still, what do those have in common? Is man, right? Okay? So there's a male bodiness to God in that sense. What else? Nature. Nature. Okay, we've got a Spinozist among us. Nature. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. Don't excommunicate people anymore. Also, he was robbed. He shouldn't have been excommunicated. What else? beyond comprehension, sort of utterly transcendent, and you can't even imagine it. Okay, I don't, I don't, I don't know don't what that is, but... I have a word for it, but... Yeah, I'm going to make this a little... <laughs> yeah. Like, right, that's that's, very, that's you, what you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, very kind of Kabbalistic-y... Yeah. Kind of, Infinities... Yeah, right. Exaggerated yeah. language, for sure, we tend to use. Anger, because in the Torah, it's very angry at points. Good, right? So, and I'm going to put that with judge, so I think often we relate the two together. God gets a bit angry sometimes, a little bit wrathy, right? Uh, light. Okay, so that kind of goes with the symbolism here for sure, right? Yeah. Light. Um, <clears throat> one thing we didn't talk about is uh, number. Yeah. Right, we didn't, we didn't say that, but maybe it was obvious, maybe it's not. But is the idea of one God obvious? If you can imagine live, growing up in a society that is not our own, right? a blank slate society, nothing exists like that, where nobody told you anything about the divine or the supernatural, what would, be your, what would you think you might imagine when you look around at the world and you think the ultimate reality is... You might not think more than one God. Yeah. You might not think that there's a God of the sea and a God, a God of the sky. Or, like yeah. The Greek gods. The Greek yeah. gods. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't think it's irrational to say that if you didn't have any prior education to contradict it probably the instinctive sense of our ancient ancestors, let's say, looking at the world, was what we call animism, right? That kind of everything has spirits in it. And over time, that evolved into a certain kind of sense that actually those spirits are not just the spirit of the tree and the leaf and the river and whatever, but actually there's a kind of personality that exists behind that who has characteristics and and human-type attributes. That's very much the kind of Greek and Roman and other ancient pantheons and then eventually it evolved past that to a sense of actually all those personalities are probably one thing ultimately. And it gets more and more abstract. Right? The key thing about that journey, if we can characterize it from kind of animism in the ancient world, very ancient world, kind of pre-written world, to today, is that what it's really doing is getting more abstract, mostly. Right? The idea of God, or divinity, because right? we're not too attached to the G word, went from this river that I get the water from that feeds my family and allows me to survive is divine to God is some completely abstract entity which exists outside of space and time and which I can't touch or feel or interact with. 
And at certain points, this line is kind of, this is not an accurate representation of how this line has developed, right? From animism, a straight line across to contemporary Morgan Freeman in the movies, which, by the way, is part of the backsliding. So in reality, this line is more like, kind of goes up for a little bit, and then across, and then around, and then to the side. And at different times in human history, right, this, this is not a natural progression from animism to monotheism. That's a very kind of uh, imperialist way of looking at the world, that of course everything would be how it is today. Actually, there's lots of good reason why it may have gone other directions, and there's lots of times and places where the impulse back towards what we might call animism, or seeing spirituality in the world around us, resurges. Right? And actually, when you look at Judaism, and this is what we're going to talk a little bit about, the notion of God actually quite oscillates between two extremes to some extent. Right? And at certain po- so in the in the Torah and beforehand, God is very much, let's say that the two extremes are what we call imminent. What does imminent mean, anyone know? <coughs> These are good abstract words. Right. Imminent and transcendent. Right there in front of you. Right, imminent is in front of you. You can touch it, you can feel it, you can engage with it. It's real, it has a body, it's it's around you. Transcendent is the opposite, right? It's beyond, you can't touch it, you can't feel it. Right? We tend to think that Judaism is just here, and that it's gradually evolved to be always different types of transcendent. The reality is, of course, that's an extreme oversimplification, and Judaism is really a kind of back and forth between these two, and has gone at different points in time. So, in the Bible, even, you have this, right? That actually, at some points in the Bible, you see Moses teaching the Israelites, actually, it's this very abstract idea of God. Ain od mil vado, there's no other but God. And then a couple hundred years later, you've got the Israelites building sanctuaries at Bethel and sacrificing animals to different local deities like Chemosh and Moloch and all these things. And then the prophets get angry about it, and it goes back towards transcendent, and the prophets die, and the people forget, and it goes back towards imminent. And it's a constant dynamic motion. There isn't a static place in that cycle where Judaism goes, yeah, this is God. It's about the tension, really, between those two things and the fact that it's constantly moving and changing. And what that means is different time periods in Judaism, different eras, God has been understood and depicted differently. So there isn't, and this is a disappointing answer, right? The question is, what is God? Right? Hint, not what you think. Whatever you think, it's not that, because it's going to be that and other things. And that's really the tricky part is that at any point along this, you can say, oh, well, here, God was some, they understood God this way, and here it was totally different, and here it was totally different. And these people often think these people are heretics, right? And the reverse is true, because they're on either ends of this spectrum of imminence and transcendence. Whereas the reality is that God is kind of a combination of the two, and at different points in times, different aspects have been emphasized. So what I want to do is think a little bit about those different stages, first and foremost, because that helps us to contextualize what we might think for ourselves. And then we're going to talk about what we might think when we talk about theology in the abstract. Any questions about that before we do that? I thought today. But I guess when you say change over time between transcendence and imminence, it doesn't change over the Torah, does it? Well, that's a good segue. So um, I think that there's several kind of, let's for now talk about several different versions of God, right? We're not saying there's different gods, but different versions. So let's start with the Torah, right? That's where we have to start ultimately, because the Torah is the basis of Judaism. Now the Torah is coming out of an Egyptian context, right? Ancient Egypt had many, many, many deities, more than we actually know about, and all of which had a very kind of imminent sense in terms of the fact that they were 
there as a statue in the temple. Right? Famously, the Egyptian priests never actually showed anyone the statues in the temple. It wasn't like the Greek temples where you go in and see the statue. The statues were hidden, and the priests got up every day, and they fed it, and they dressed it, and they made sure it had clothing on, but nobody ever saw it except for the priests. On the one day a year of the statue or the god's festival, they would put it on a barge and row it down the Nile inside of a box where no one could see, but they knew it was there. And the sense that we get is that people really believe that statue was, in fact, a personification of this divine force and that it was cared for by the priests. If anyone had pulled back the curtain, they might have gone, oh, it's just a statue, and it may have ruined the impression. But that's the world that Egypt is certainly given to the Israelites when they start trying to figure out for themselves. And right now we're reading, of course, in the Torah, as we are in Bo this week, about the Israelites trying to separate themselves from ancient Egypt. And part of the way they do that is to think differently about God. So God in the Torah is not uniform, right? God in Genesis is like a little baby, Sorry, God, right? Genesis God doesn't know how people work, right? The Garden of Eden, God is genuinely surprised when the people don't do what they're supposed to do. Then, shortly after, God is a bit like a toddler, right? When actually the people keep not doing what they're supposed to do, and God decides to kind of knock over the whole thing and start over, right? It's like a little kid who's piled up blocks, doesn't like it, smashes the whole thing, right? The flood story is a very angry kind of infantile version of God in some way. God then develops and changes again. So by the time the patriarchs come along later in Genesis... God is now kind of mm, interacting with them a bit differently. More lofty, but less violent. More interested in negotiation, right? Abraham's able to talk to God and go, well, if there was 50 good people in stone, would you still burn it down? Mm, Maybe 10, right? God negotiates down to 10. So that version of God is very different than the version of the flood, which actually isn't interested in negotiating whatsoever, just destroying stuff. And even after that, right, by the time of Joseph, God kind of disappears from the story. Nobody talks to God in Joseph's story, Joseph has dreams in which God speaks to him. So over the course of the Torah, God goes from being quite imminent and relatable and almost very human to being increasingly more abstract and distant. By the time of Moses, which obviously is not that long after Joseph, God is what? What, How does Moses experience God? In a burning bush? bush? Not even visions, actually. Moses never sees anything. Moses hears, right? So Joseph sees things in his dreams. Moses now only hears. So it's almost like, you know, God is being diluted over time. In the beginning, God is very present. Actually, in Genesis 1, it says God is walking around the garden, walking with legs. God is walking around the garden, going, oh, where are the humans? God is actually there with them, right? Which is very hard for us to conceive of, because it seems to contradict our theology, because we're down with Moses later. But if you actually read Genesis, God is walking around the garden, And then when you get to the flood, God is very much there, present on earth, paying attention. But by the time of Moses, God is just a voice coming out of a bush that happens to not be burning up, but is on fire in the middle of the desert. (coughs) So either you see that as a gradually more transcendent and distant version of God, or you see it as kind of a gradually more diluted and abstract version of God. By the way, something is changing throughout the course of the Torah. And from Moses on, God stays pretty abstract. Moses speaks with God, hears the voice, and returns speech. Joshua does the same, but less so. And after Joshua, nobody speaks to God anymore, right? The prophets that come after Joshua, Samuel and Gidon and Isaiah and Jeremiah, they don't speak to God. God speaks to them, right? They hear hear something or intuit something, and they write it down and say, God told me this. So over time, from Genesis to the end of the Torah, the Tanakh, let's say the Hebrew Bible, God gets more and more abstract from being very physically in the garden to now just being a voice that sometimes tells people stuff. Which is different, 
right? So we often, we often deny that it's different, by the way. And conventional theology says, oh, God never changes. I don't know. The, the Hebrew Bible seems to show that God is very different, or at least chooses to interact differently at different times. I'm not saying God necessarily changed, but it does feel a little bit like God grew up, right? Like as a parent in some way, you can imagine kind of as your children go, you, you get more distant, and it goes from being literally physically there wiping their bum to, you know, they're on the end of a phone call once every two months. So there's a kind of distance that comes with that that we see with God as well. Call your parents. Yeah. So you could describe that as God changing, or you could describe that as our relationship with God changing. Yeah. Honestly, I don't think it matters that much. But in the Torah, God is, is a variety of things, right? God is not necessarily one thing in one place. And ultimately, the God we mostly think about is the one that interacts with Moses, which is actually mostly an auditory experience. I'm going to try and draw an ear. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. No, that's not near. That's near, right? Let's say it's near, right? So God is mostly a sound and a voice. There's actually very little vision, surprisingly, although we often think of it that way when we imagine it. And specifically, Moses is told by God in Exodus, nobody can see me while they're alive. So there's an implication that maybe after you die, you can see God, or if you do see God, it kills you. Either way, God is too dangerous to, to really be allowed to interact with. And that's something that we often forget about the God of the Torah. God is really dangerous, right? When people get too close, they get hurt. There's a story of Nadav and Avihu in, in Leviticus, Aaron's two sons, who, in numbers, sorry, who get too close, they do something wrong in the ritual, and they get consumed by fire inside of the tabernacle. There is the story of Korach, right, when the, he rebels and Moses tries to stop God from causing a plague, and God is just like a nuclear explosion that has gone out of control, radiating around, damaging everything. Even in the story of the Exodus that we're literally going to read on Shabbat this week, you hear the description of God saying, I'm going to come through Egypt to kill all the firstborn, and actually I don't have the power to discriminate between good ones and bad ones. You have to do something in order to show me that you're the Israelites, and you have to hide in your house after you do it, right? You've got to paint with blood and hide in your house, and that way I'll skip over those houses. So there's a real sense of kind of God as being a very dangerous and intimidating and scary thing to come close to. When people get too close, they get hurt. Now, in that sense, I think actually the best way to think about God is almost as a, as a kind of uh, uh, energy force in the Torah, at least the later version of God. Almost like, let's say, a you know, nuclear radiating, radiating force. It's something which can power cities and do amazing things and, and is extremely powerful, undeniably, but also like very dangerous to be too close to, has to be handled with care. There are certain procedures that have to be done in order to access that power. In many ways, that's what Leviticus is all about, right? Leviticus is training a bunch of people to be radiation engineers in how to actually access and control and summon the powers that God has as, uh, available. That's probably the best analogy we have in today's world is, is some kind of nuclear imagery, which is strange, right? Because that doesn't feel like something you have a very personal relationship with. Now, if I worked at a power plant, I imagine I might have a kind of personal sense of the power and force of the nuclear reactor in there. But most of us have a very, you know, it doesn't mean anything to us. We don't have a relationship with nuclear power. But perhaps we can imagine that it's possible to do so when you see it around you, when you see its actions, when it splits the sea open, when you see a pillar of cloud following you around, this is a thing of power, right? Abstract and amorphous and very dangerous power. So the God of the Torah is, is kind of scary, not Morgan Freeman, right? I'm going to stress that. Um, and actually has very little human characteristics, at least after you get past Exodus. In the beginning of Genesis, there's a different question, by the way. Is God walking around the garden is an open question. What does that look like? And how does that change into what comes later? 
also an open question. But we see a variety of images that are portrayed all at the same time, which is somewhat frustrating. Now, after the close of the Torah and the Tanakh and the Hebrew Bible, we have another image of God, right, which is God of the rabbis. Right? So this is the image of God you see depicted in the Mishnah and in the Talmud and in a lot of the rabbinic texts, the Midrashim, in which they imagine stories about God. This God is very much a kind of fatherly figure, right? very much uh, an intellectual. This God sits in a court. There's a lot of court imagery as a judge and determines people's fates and is kind of a very philosophical figure who kind of sits high and lofty and considers everything going on and doesn't really intervene, but is this kind of force out in the universe. So if this god in the Torah can be seen through nuclear energy, perhaps, as a kind of naturalistic energy power force, this one's a very humanistic one, right? The rabbis think of God very much in their own image. God often sounds a bit like a rabbi when you read the rabbinic stories, right? There's stories about God putting on tefillin in the morning, and there's stories about God sitting and judging cases. And there's a famous story where the rabbis outsmart God of the oven of Achnai, which is a very important story in the rabbinic imagery, and the result is that they think that God up in heaven is going, oh, my children have outsmarted me, right? That God takes pleasure in the fact that they're intellectually curious and have overturned the Torah and changed the rules and are messing with it. So this is a very abstract and in some way, um, different God than the naturalistic radiative power that you see in the Torah. The other God that you see in the rabbis is through the mystical texts of the rabbis, mostly from the kind of 3rd to 7th century, where there's a whole tradition, it's called Hechalot mysticism, of rabbis going into trances, usually by using drugs, and exploring the realms of heaven that they imagine, and God there is freaking terrifying, right? So that version of God preserves a little bit of the Torah one. Because there, God is this terrifying, powerful force who sits on a throne. There's lots of royal imagery to those texts, where God sits on a throne and has attendance and has a court. And the rabbis who manage to go through these trances and explore the heavenly realms kind of get assaulted by the angels, who are often also very scary, by the way. Wheels covered in eyes, on fire, and all sorts of stuff. Not the harps and, and you know, halos <laughs> and wings kind of nonsense that you see in cards. So... Those, those rabbis who are engaging that god, it's, it's a very terrifying monarchical power in terms of absolute rule over the universe and the cosmos. So they combine together these two very different images, really, which we see a lot in our prayers, by the way. God is kind of a judge. We see that and talk about that a lot. And God is a king in many ways, and to some extent a father. Right? It's often very gendered here. God is portrayed as a father. Not much of that is in the Torah, by the way. Well, the Torah itself, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, there's not a lot of that. God is often much more of a naturalistic energy. Here, God is a voice, and God is a power, um, and God is scary. But uh, the imagery of different characteristics of judge, king, right, the kind of high holiday imagery of God, Avinu, Malkenu, Slachlanu, that's all very much the product of the rabbis and their particular interpretation of God. And again, this is kind of 200 to 200, let's say, roughly, um, so around the year zero. I mean, there's a little bit more than that, so BCE to CE. So that's obviously a very formative time for Judaism in which God develops and changes a lot. What comes next, who knows what comes next? When we go into the medieval periods, we're going up in time, right? So then we have God of the philosophers. So once Arabic philosophy, which is itself derived from Greek philosophy, expands and reaches Jews, they start also imagining God differently as a result of those philosophical texts, where now we kind of return in some way to a naturalistic depiction of God, but a very abstract one. 
right? So here we have people like Maimonides, right, who talks for the first time about dogmatic theology and who makes statements like, you know, God is, is unknowable, right? That's where you get this very lofty, very abstract, very kind of naturalistic depictions of light and infinity and all the words that we talked about that are the omnis, right, where we're trying to define God by how God acts rather than what God is. That's very much a product of this very extensive philosophical rambling that happens over the course of several centuries. Again, this is kind of like, I don't know, 900 to 1200, let's say, um, although it's hard to pinpoint exactly. It's very much the kind of medieval period that you see most of that. Actually, this extends much further if you count all the stuff that comes later. So you have a change, right? You have these several different changes in how we understand God throughout these periods. And this one is very different. Now, in some way, as we talked about the oscillation, right? In some way, this one resembles the, the Tanakh one much more than we would, we would realize, actually. And as a result, you can kind of ignore this one and skip between these two, and you have a very similar imagery, right? If you just ignored the judge, king, father sitting on a throne judging people and only had the philosophical idea of God as this infinite light and also the Torah idea of God as kind of a voice in the wilderness, you could probably make those work. Right? You could probably make them jive. Which is mostly, by the way, what a lot of Judaism does today, particularly Reform Judaism. Just kind of ignores this stuff and sticks with these two, to some extent. So it's not impossible. It's, it's not really, you know, it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure novel here, by the way. There's no right answer. It has to be this one way, and if it's not, you're not Jewish. That's not how this works. But we're not done either. Right? So there's one more that comes after the late medieval... Which is what? Who knows? Daniel knows. Sorry, what? <laughs> you know. What's the next one? Who's what? after this? Um, um, Luria? Yeah, the Kabbalists. Kabbalah? Yes. <clears throat> so in reaction to the, the philosophical speculation of the early medieval period, a whole bunch of people went, nope, that's wrong. We need to go back the other way. Remember our oscillation, up and down and up and down and up and down. So they didn't like this philosophical idea of God as being this abstract entity, a light, pure, and shining. Right? They wanted a lot more Morgan Freeman in their lives. And so they decided to go back. Again, these two are more closely related, one and three, than these two. So we can now go back in some way to a lot of this imagery of God as having really human characteristics. And they really double down on this idea that actually God is male and female, Right? So now they expand it, and they have this real robust sense. And, by the way, having sex with itself. And there's a whole robust notion, as any of you have spent time in the Zohar class with me, about God's kind of inner sexual life, used imagistically to understand what's going on. There's also lots of affirmation of God's bodily actions in the world, right? So they actually have less of a problem of talking about God as a bodily entity. Not that God has a body per se, but talking about God as, as you know, something which is anthropomorphic which is a big word that means looks like humans, right? So and that's ultimately what a lot of the debate here is about, is anthropomorphism. Is God like humans or not? These ones, the Torah and the philosophers, tend to say, mm, less so. These ones, the rabbis and the Kabbalists, tend to go, actually, God is a lot like us. God sits on a throne. God has genitalia, etc. Right? We're not going to get into the genitalia today. That's super class. Okay? So... Um, in addition to the male and the female and the sexuality that's in the bodily stuff, it's very embodied, their notion of God. It's also much closer to um, the animistic that we started with, right? Remember back here, the animistic, in which everything now has a divinity in it? So they introduced this idea that God is a compound entity, right? Which is actually not necessarily a new idea, but it's their way of kind of making all this other stuff work. 
I imagine you're here and you're a, you're a mystic. And this is kind of 1200 to 1700, right? And you're a mystic and you're sitting there going, okay, well, we've got all of these different pictures of God. The Christians, they know exactly what God looks like. They literally have them up on the wall, right? And the Muslims, they know exactly what they think about God, which is very little, right? They, they tend to be very much on this kind of philosophical abstract. That's the whole idea of shirk in Islam is that you can't say anything. Complete unity. But we don't really know what we think. We never decided. We never had a synod and said, you know what, we think about God, it's like this. So the result is that you have all of these different entities, and one idea is just to mix them all together, right? To say, actually, all of those things are true at the same time. And that's very much what the Kabbalists tend to do, is try and compound all of this stuff together. So they go, yes, God is an infinite light, which existed before creation, but also a being that has sex with itself and engages with the world in naturalistic ways. So... Which works, by the way. You just smush them all together. However, it means that lots of people then go, is that still monotheism? And that's the question that is not so clear to answer. Because if you take all of these and put them together, are you still talking about one thing? Right? If all of these are switched together, if God is a king and a father and a queen and has genitalia, but is also an infinite light that doesn't have any body, and also is a voice that comes out of the wilderness but sometimes walks around, what are we, what are we even talking about? Right? But can one thing not be many at the same time? Isn't you know uh, if they are all connected, potentially one doesn't need to be. It can be one and many, paradoxically, and at the same time. Very good. So good segue. I feel like I set this up right, both of you. <laughs> so what does it mean to be one? Is is ultimately the question that arises from this. We have all of these images, and I can't tell you right. As someone particularly that was interested in conversion, I can't say, oh yes, Judaism believes in God that looks like this and acts like this. Because that would be foolish, because it would be inevitably leaving some bits out. But what we can say, the one thing that we can say for sure that all of these have in common, however stretched it might be, looking at you, Kabbalists, <coughs> is the idea that God is one. Right? One. Now, what does that mean? There's many ways to be one. So we have uh, one, right? That's our key theme, is oneness. That's what the Shema is all about. We talk about it all the time. We call ourselves monotheists meaning we believe in one God, but what kind of ones are there? Sounds like a strange question, but what could mean we when we say one, right? We could mean one, not two, right? So what we mean is there's one God, not two gods, or three gods, or four gods, or five gods, meaning that actually there's only one God that exists. So that could mean that when the Torah is saying, you know, God is real and all the others are not, that it actually means that the other, the Egyptian gods don't exist. They actually are a lie. They're an illusion. They don't exist at all. There's only our god who is the only one that exists. That's one way to see one, is one and not two. That make sense? Okay. The other way to see one is that one is a kind of sum. That's my sigma. Sum of everything else, right? So actually when you say all is one, you mean everything together is actually one thing. So that theology would look at Egypt and say, well, you guys believe in Ra and Ptah and Chnum, and actually, they're all one thing, right? They do exist, but they don't exist as separate entities. They're all one ultimate reality. That's a very different move, right? Do you see the distinction between that? This kind of monotheism, to say your gods don't exist and mine does, versus this kind of monotheism, which is to say all your gods exist, but they all are one thing ultimately, is really different. And depending on which one you understand monotheism to be, it changes very differently how you interact with other religions, what kind of spirituality you tolerate, and also how you think about God, right? Because if you have this one, the sum approach, 
then you can make a lot of room for all different depictions of God because you can go, well, yes, you know, that's, that's true for some people and God looks this way and God, one thing manifests many different ways, right? One into many. This is a one that's very inclusive and includes lots of other things within it. It's a sum. One is a sum. But this is a one that is exclusive. It's, no, no, there's only one and not anything else. The other ones don't exist. They're not real, which is actually quite different. In Hebrew, we often use the words uh, echad, I'm going to write it in cursive because it doesn't really matter. Echad, which means the number one, right? Um, uh, yachid. These are all related grammatically, by the way, as you might be able to tell. Yachid, which means singular. So it means only one. And meyuchad, which means unique. Oh, so what did you say? Yeah, special, unique. Special, yeah, unique. Okay, good. So you can see, by the way, even the word unique, the word uni, as in one, right? So that means, you know, there's none other like it. We say that language a lot, right? There's, there's no king like you. There's none of the gods are like you. Mi chamocha ba'elim Adonai. Who is like you among the gods? By the way, we say that every week, yeah? Mi chamocha ba'elim Adonai. Not too many people realize that what the implication of that is is that there are other gods, yeah. right? <laughs> Who is like you among the gods? Meaning ours is better than theirs, but not denying that the others exist nor saying that all of them are actually our God. So there's the, the Torah often does neither of these, by the way, or vacillates between them, or says, actually, this is just our God, and we don't really care what everyone else thinks, and, and, and ours is better than theirs is, which isn't really monotheism. Right? Micha mocha ba'elim adonai is not monotheism in either sense, which is problematic. So here, this echad, yachid, meyuchad gives us a way to think about different senses of oneness. One as in the number one, meaning we are number one. And also there's one and not two, right? Numerically, there is only a single one. Uh, yachid, meaning that it is only one or all one, you might say as well. You could read that either way. And meyuchad, meaning unique, as in it's different than all the others if they do exist. But again, it's hard to make all of those ideas necessarily work together. And so in some way, we just kind of hold them all together. We say, God is Echad, Yachid, and Meyuchad. But we don't say how that all fits together, which is difficult and troubling. And I think part of the problem is that when we say God, we don't actually know what we mean. And when we say we're monotheists, we don't always know what we mean. And I think that's a problem, because if you don't know what you mean when you say you're a monotheist, then what's the point in being a monotheist? You might as well believe that the trees and the rivers and everything else are all gods themselves, because at least then you get to have a personal relationship with the stuff around you, as opposed to some abstract idea of oneness. So it's really important that we think about what exactly monotheism is, which we're going to do. Um, I think there's two ways to do it, using the Greek letter omega. Before we do that, any questions? Some of you have seen my omega before. Sorry about that. You might be surprised we're using a Greek letter, but there's no Hebrew letter that's the right shape. So... Um, I really mean omega because it looks like this, right? Who learned Greek in school? Nice. Okay. We got a hand. So this is a capital omega. Is that right? looks like this. Yeah. Often a little doohickey here. Okay. And basically it's a horseshoe. Right. So you can just call it a horseshoe. I don't care. Um, and I think the problem with monotheism is that we often are very unclear about what we mean when we say monotheism. And I think there's only two ways to get even remotely close to being a monotheist. And the key thing is that there's a space here that we cannot reach, right? This space that the omega does not touch. This is where God probably actually is. This is what, we, what, the, what God really is, and we can't really get there. 
That's the first thing, right? Is that actually, I think, we have to be realistic about the fact that if there is an ultimate reality in the universe which transcends all categories of language and time and space, we're never going to be able to describe it. So we just have to kind of accept that. What we can do is approximate it. And there's two ways, using this omega, to approximate as close as you can get to what that truth is. This is the truth, capital T, right? Now, the closest you can get there is either one of two sides or extremes of this, uh, of this uh, shape. So over here is what I would write as God is no thing, right? Not the same as God is nothing, by the way, but closely related, right? Because the word nothing, of course, means no thing. And this is a very harsh position to say, actually, there is no way to describe God. God is no thing. God is not the stars or the moon or the sky or the Egyptian gods or whatever. It's what's called in philosophical Latin terms the via negativa, the, the way of reducing, right? So you talk about God only by talking about what God is not. So I can't tell you that God is kind, but I can tell you that God is not mean. Okay? This is very much kind of Maimonides, the hardcore Maimonides position, is to say actually God is no thing. You can't even really talk about God. Right? The word God is useless and already wrong. So you get to a kind of intellectual position where actually God is something extremely, extremely far away from day-to-day -day existence. This is the extreme of transcendence. God is so far beyond our day-to-day -day existence that we can't even possibly call it anything. It's just no thing. Which itself, by the way, has a certain kind of spirituality. This is a kind of Zen-type spirituality, I would say, in many ways, in which ultimately you're kind of contemplating and considering the fact that you can't know, knowing that you don't know. There's a certain absurdity to that, by the way, kind of contemporary existentialism, Albert Camus and all of that, the way they talk about God is very much over here, right? That God is, a, God is, is there, maybe, maybe not there, but if, and the only meaningful thing we can say about God is that we can't say anything about God. Is the conclusion that you can reach it only by science? To some extent, yes. I mean, this is a kind of anti-intellectual, the extreme, right? It's an anti-intellectual, anti-linguistic position in which tends to encourage contemplation, right? That you can't really say anything, so the best you can do is try and <coughs> think or experience or engage. This is a kind of meditative approach in many ways, but it's not one that cares all about theology, and it's not one that would have much to do with organized religion, right? Because actually, what's the point of organized religion in terms of giving people the opportunity to access God if God is no <coughs> thing? How, how does that work, right? That's, that's an interesting question. Totally did, except it's because he thought everyone else were plebes, right? He, he was, the, the nature of the people on this side tend to be very elitist. But both sides are elitist, by the way, often because they're rabbis. And for Maimonides, it was very much this sense that he thought, well, the, the enlightened, the people who do their work, the people who really understand, the ones who use their intellect to contemplate the reality, they'll know this, but all the people who don't know enough will end up over here, and we'll, we have to have shul for their sake. Right? I'm putting those words in his mouth, sorry, Maimonides, but I think that's roughly where he's at, right? Is that actually most people can't make it to this extreme position of accepting a God which is no thing, and so they end up somewhere else, which is key, right? We're going to define the other end, and we'll talk about what's in the middle. The other end is what? Who can guess? God is everything. Thank you. God is everything, right? So here is the other extreme which is very much the uh, additive approach to God. If this is the reductive approach over here, to say God is no thing, you start taking everything away, this is the additive. So how do you talk about God? Well, the only way you can possibly talk about God is to say God is 
the table and the chair and you and me and the sun and the moon and the stars and the rat and the squirrel and whatever else. And it's actually everything combined together all at once. Yeah, right? So Spinoza is much more on this side, right? He, Spinoza's funny because people think he's on this side, but he's actually kind of on this side when you actually read what he's writing, and that's why he got in trouble. It's because he confused them. But Spinoza was really interested in the truth, right? He was interested in trying to get here, and he understood that actually you can't quite do that, and so you end up on one side or the other. This is also the Kabbalists, right? They, rather than say, in response to Maimonides saying God is not a thing, they go, actually, not only has God a thing, God is male and female, God's got arms and legs and genitalia and everything else, right? They're just doubling down on this additive, very Baroque, very complex, compound entity of God as a way of also approaching monotheism, right? This is the God which is a sum equals one, and this is to some extent the God which is one which does not equal zero, we might say, in mathematical terms, right? You're saying, there is a God, but that's all we can say. Um, so there's very different concepts of monotheism, but I think, and maybe I'm wrong on this, I think that actually, truthfully, the only real monotheisms, true monotheisms, are this one or that one, right? Either you believe God is no thing, or you believe God is everything. Both of those, to me, are monotheisms, meaning that God is, there's only one God. The problem, of course, what's the opposite of monotheism? No. I don't think so. I might be wrong in this. But what's the Torah always really upset about? All right, idolatry. So the problem is that everything here in the middle, you're saying God is something. Now, what do we mean by something? We mean that I'm saying, oh, well, God is the moon, but not the sun. Right? So you're not saying everything. You're not including everything. But you're also not saying nothing. You're saying, well, this thing is God, but that thing isn't. So when you start saying God is something, then you end up in a position where you're somewhere in between. And actually, that's what ultimately idolatry is, from my point of view, is when you say God is this thing, but not that. You can be monotheistic by saying God isn't that thing, or that thing, or that thing. Or you can be monotheistic by saying God is all those things. But once you say God is that one, but not this one, you end up in a position where you're saying God is one thing and not another, or something in contemporary English language, and you end up somewhere on this arc of idolatry, right? TM. <laughs> now, most, I would say 99% of all religion, including ours, is somewhere on the arc of idolatry, right? Because actually being on these extreme points here and here is really difficult, and probably you can't really stay there mentally, because inevitably you're going to end up going, well, God looks a bit like Morgan Freeman, right? So if, if you think you can stay here all the time or here all the time, and, but then when you think of God, you think of Morgan Freeman, you just slip somewhere up here, <laughs> Which is totally natural and reasonable, and is not something we should fault ourselves for. Because actually, these extremes are very hard to hold, right? If you imagine there's a certain amount of energy or force needed to push yourself around the edges of this, the more, the further you push yourself, the closer you get to the edges, the harder it is to hold. And there's a natural gravity up here in the middle, in the worst part of idolatry, <coughs> where you say God is this thing and not the other thing. You end up just kind of sliding back there naturally, intellectually. You can't help it as much as you might like to. Yeah. I just wanted to mention, it's really interesting because all this is what we think, but it doesn't necessarily need to be what is. So I'm just thinking, you know, it's our position in relation to that rather than what God is or not. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in some way, you know, what we're, what we're really, we can't really say that much, I guess. So uh, perhaps the whole thing is within this side in some way, in that, in that regard. Without human limited in this Yeah, side. right. Since we're limited by language and we need to try and describe the idea of one God, we kind of have two options. 
Now, I think different things appeal to different people. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with being somewhere on the Ark, right? So, like, the Zohar is over here somewhere, right, where, like, God is a lot of stuff, but not quite everything. Spinoza, I think you're right, is somewhere down here more, where, like, he's more or less saying God is everything, but he doesn't quite go all the way, right? Maimonides himself, by the way, isn't all the way here, because he still writes and talks about God as something that has characteristics and attributes. So he's somewhere over here. Pretty extreme, but not really extreme. You know, there's, there's all sorts of other... The, the rabbis are probably up here somewhere, although they might not like to hear that. Right? The Torah is somewhere along here, too, sometimes. And most of religion, in some way or another, is somewhere along here, right? I mean, to take the example of Christianity, obviously, the reason that we have such an issue with Christianity theologically is they're going, oh, yeah, God is this guy. Ah, oh, what could be a worse depiction of God is something to say God is this bloke here, right? <laughs> and, but not everyone else? Why him? Right? So there's a sense in which, actually, idolatry is about trying to restrict God if you're coming from this point of view, restrict God to only these things, or if you're coming from this point of view, trying to say God is anything, in which case it's idolatry. But either one, I think, is acceptable. Personally, I tend to try and go more this way, but there's been times in my life where I want to go more this way, and I don't think either is better than the other, because ultimately, both of them are wrong. The goal is to try and get here, but we're never going to get there. Right? That's where we started. We're never going to get there. We're only going to get as close as we possibly can, and we're not going to be able to hold it. Eventually, it's going to slide back, and that's okay. Right? Often when we're in pain or when we're struggling, we might suddenly think of God very differently and go, you know, even though if you asked you on a good day when you weren't hurting, and I said, you know, do you believe that, you know, God will grant you a new car? If you pray really hard, you go, of course not, that's silly. But maybe if you really need a new car, you might start to change how you feel about that and go, I just really love a new car. So our perspective and relationship with the idea of God depends on our circumstances, for sure. Right? So it would be foolish for us to say, oh, yes, we're always, I'm, I'm always here. I never, never slide anywhere else, and my views never change. That would be wrong, right? Because it's not possible. I think we all have tendencies, though. And hopefully your tendency is not to gravitate around here. Because ultimately, that's the worst possible spot. I'm, I'm having trouble with this idolatry thing. Because, yeah. Um, my, the way I think of idolatry is, is having objects, whether they're concrete or not, through which you mediate... Mm. So I assume that uh, ter- uh, Abraham's father didn't actually believe that a wooden thing was God, but it was a way to God. It represented God, the, the representations. And, um, and in a way, some of our practices are idolatrous. We kiss the siddur, yep. we kiss the Torah. Precisely, as you say, because we make it a mediator. Mm. We make it to stand in the place of. Mm. And, and absolutely, that's the key problem, right, is when you say, oh, God is, or, or the access to God, or the path to God, or whatever it might be, is this thing here. Whether it's a statue, or whether it's a book, or whether it's a person, or whether it's money, whatever it might be. Yes, but if you think about it as mediating, a way to get a little bit closer to 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 God or whatever yeah. and to demonstrate your respect and love or whatever it is you have um, then is idolatry really a bad thing? Is that a bad place to be? Because it's as close as you're going to get. I think it is a natural place to be to, to put it that way and I think it's kind of inevitable um, and I think actually you know, it might be natural to kind of look at something and go, this is, this is the thing I'm going to use to approach God with, whether it's a statue or a particular kind of building, right, or a place 
or a song, whatever it might be. I think anything really can become the thing that you say, oh, this is, this is how I access God. I think the, the push against idolatry that Judaism talks so much about is harder than it sounds. It's not just smash the idols. Right? It's actually changing your mind and thinking differently to try and push past your connection to this particular thing which connects you to God and either go towards embracing everything, which is very difficult, it's impossible, or kind of rejecting everything. But neither is really possible, right? I think that's the key thing. If these are the extremes, these are the poles, but ultimately most of us end up somewhere along here. And I think it's hard to say which is better or worse, perhaps, in terms of idolatry. But I think we can acknowledge that most of us, even those who consider themselves very religious, are mostly practicing idolatry, maybe once in a while or genuinely monotheistic. What I think this should mostly do is cast doubts for ourselves on what it means when we say we're monotheistic. Right? And I think maybe we should be a little bit less worried about being monotheistic, a little bit more focused on you know, actually how to, how to live and practice a religion, because we get so obsessed with the idea that we're monotheists, but we never actually really think about what that means, because it's quite an extreme position to be a monotheist, one way or the other. Okay, where, yes? Where does the notion fit in of the like, divine sparks and everything? Is that just... I mean, yeah, I mean, that's definitely right. You, you get to this place where, you know, the, the, so the Kabbalists, like many mystical systems, start to go to a direction where they say, actually, the world, the universe, is God, right? Is God's body, in a sense, where God built the universe out of God's self. And that's the idea of emanation rather than creation. Everything that exists is actually God itself, right? Everything that is alive is God itself. That tends to be my position, by the way, which I recognize is somewhere over here. So yeah, I, I'm aware of that. Right? Because I don't think the table is God, but I think all of us are God. So that makes me here somewhere. And I'm okay with that. I'm happy with that. But the Kabbalists are definitely trying to experiment with different ways of getting towards this, some of which are really extreme, and some of which are actually more closer up to the ear, where they say God is this and not that. And it depends. No one is, is probably right. I think generally, if you wanted to cast it, this is the mystical side, and this is the rational side. But again, that's an oversimplification. Yeah. Yeah. Not, I mean, for me personally, like... It, it resonates quite well, considering my story, yeah. if you like, as you know. It's yeah. like I don't have any issue with, you know, trees, birds, clouds, whatever, it's, it's all there. Yeah. So I'm kind of just trying to wait. Yeah, and I think for, if you're that kind of person, the question to ask yourself is kind of what don't I include and why? And if I see God in an inclusive way then what's not included? Mm. And also, what does that mean then for how I interact with God? Is it just appreciating, hey, squirrel? Is it, is it actually something deeper? How, what does that look you like? See, you, you say that you wouldn't include a table. Like, I might, I, when you said that, my immediate thought is, well, hang on, if, if it was the inspiration to design yeah. it and make no, I get it, it, you, it a, from there? So. You, I mean, you, you, can, you, can, you can kind of you know, travel around this for ages, especially if you get too involved in Kabbalah, which I don't recommend. And, and ultimately, you're never going to get to the extreme point of it because language is going to limit it. Because when you say God is, is this and this and this and this, this is only something you're leaving out just by virtue of the fact that we're using words. So I think we, it's sometimes helpful for those of us who are around here to have a little refresher and go back this way and go, oh, language is useless. And by the way, for the people who naturally go here and go, there's no way I can possibly speak about God. God is not a thing I can speak of. Sometimes it's useful to go the other way because the danger of being here is you forget that there's divinity all around you. Right? And you become very removed from the world, and perhaps people are less significant. You look down on things because nothing is divine. Here, everything is divine, in which case, at some point, nothing becomes divine. Which, again, they, they, like a horseshoe, right? they tend to approach each other the further you get. 
So yeah. I'm thinking with all inclusiveness, then you have to bring inclusive attributes, which means then that God has to be bad yes. and good and evil. Are you just here for my segues, Renata? Yes. <laughs> so so this is the challenge, right? Linked up with this, so we've talked about theology. I know we, we're going to go a bit over time, but that's okay. We talked about theology. What I want to talk about a little bit is theodicy, right? Which is a question of, okay, then why does bad stuff happen? Because ultimately the question is, why does evil stuff happen? Why is there bad? Is the thing that is going to have to be interacting with any kind of theology. And we talked already about three claims we make about God. And ultimately, theodicy is pretty simple. It's a math problem, okay? So number one is God is all good, right? Number two is God, oops, God is all knowing. That's what you mentioned earlier about omniscience. And number three is God is all-powerful. These are usually the three things that we think about when we think about God. All good, all-knowing, all-powerful. Now, the truth is, if evil exists, which I think we all agree it does, right? So you can get out of this whole problem if you're willing to say there's no such thing as evil, which some Christian theologies do, by the way. They say there is no evil. There's no suffering. It's just in your mind. It's actually good. I'm not willing to say that. I don't know if you are. Which means that if you, if you embrace the idea there is evil, there is suffering, bad things happen, then you have to reckon with the fact that evil cannot exist and all three of these be true. Right? It's a logical conundrum. If evil exists, then God cannot be all good, all knowing, and all powerful. Is that because we get, we get choices to choose to do something or something? Yes, yeah, so now you get to choose which one you would like. So in Judaism, like all religions, ultimately you have to pick. So let's think about what the options are. So, you can have two out of three, by the way. Mm-hmm. Pick a mix. Okay? So, let's talk about, let's say, one and three. So, God is all good and all powerful. Lovely, right? What a nice image. God wants good for the world and can do it. What's the problem? He's ignorant. Not paying attention. Yeah. Right? God is not paying attention. God would fix the evil stuff in the world and could do it if God knew what was going on. Right? Sorry, my phone is incredibly loud. Um, and that ultimately is a theology, right? That God is, 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 is ignorant. I think that's the best way to put it, right? That's the problem. That's why there's evil, is that God isn't paying attention. By the way, there's hints of that in the Torah, right? Read about the Exodus. 400 years go by, Israelites are in slavery. Nobody seems to care. Israelites go, help us! They go, oh, didn't know about that, right? And God goes and gets involved. So there's, an, there's a degree to which you can absolutely support this from a biblical point of view. That actually God doesn't really care. God's not really paying attention. Right? God can solve the problems and would and you know would want to because God's good, but ultimately isn't really that focused on human life and what's going on and evil and suffering. Which means, of course, if you accept this odyssey, the main thing you have to do is draw God's attention. Right? That that's the approach is to try and get God's attention. That's what you would do if you accepted one and three. Anyone feel like that's their natural home? Ignorant God. None of the options are great, by the way. So if you're waiting for the better one, none of them are great. Right, so let's consider uh, two and three. So here we have God is all-knowing and all-powerful. He doesn't care too much about humans. Yeah, but kind of a jerk. Mm-hmm. Right, this is the jerk option. Well, Sorry, that's a bit. Yes, please. doesn't care about all might care about some. Ooh. Ooh. That's an interesting one. For the time... That, that does add a little bit of caveat, doesn't it? Well, it does. And I'm... I'm well, I'm thinking of the Exodus again. In, in yeah. The 10th plague. But 
I mean, I think I think you God's a bit of a jerk. Because yeah. 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 I mean, that might be the wrong word, right? I'm just trying to simplify yeah, it. But, yeah. but the idea is that God is know, knows what's going on and, and has the power to fix it, but actually doesn't really want to, yeah. right? For whatever reason, that doesn't mean necessarily that God's a jerk, but it could mean that actually evil is part of what God does, yeah. as Renata said, mm-hmm. right? So maybe we should characterize this differently, um, which is that God is, is good and evil. That might be the way we understand it. And that both of those are the same, uh, are both performed by God. By the way, Isaiah says explicitly in God's voice, I am God who creates light and makes darkness. I am God who does good and makes evil, right? There's no doubt the rabbis didn't like that. And so when they put it in our prayer book, they took out the word evil and changed it to makes everything, which is a huge cop-out, by the way. So there, there is some precedent here for God as being both good and evil, which actually monotheistically kind of makes sense, especially if you consider Zoroastrian religion in the ancient world. They had two gods, the good one and the evil one. That's easy, Right? If you, if you want something, you pray to the good God, and you always have someone to blame, because it's always the bad God. The bad God's responsible for all the bad stuff, and the shadows, and the darkness, and the evil. That's easy. But if you want to be a monotheist, you can't have a bad God. That's not an option. Tell that to the Christians who believe in the devil, right? There, you cannot have a bad God and be a monotheist. Yeah. Well, maybe evil has a function, like people that believe in reincarnation would say, yeah. you know, is evil is happening, maybe, or I yeah. don't know. Yeah, I think evil is is very um, dependent on your perspective because uh, you know if you look at the the Exodus story, uh, there's no question that killing everybody's firstborn is pretty evil. Yeah, but only from the Egyptians' perspective. From our point of view, it's a wonderful thing. And uh, and from our point of view, it's a wonderful thing, but it's not clearly. So God has a different perspective. He 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 sees so. It might be good in the end. It might we, just. It might be part of his plan, and we only see our perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely a very sound theology. About it. it's hard when you're when you're in suffering, and and you know someone is suffering around you, and what you're saying is well, actually, you know, from God's point of view, this isn't such a bad thing. So it's, it's you've got to be careful with that one. All of these you have to be careful with. By the way, none of these are like you know ready to, to ready prepared ready to go with the odysseys. Because all of them have problems, right? You're going to tell someone who's suffering, actually, God doesn't really care about you, right? He isn't paying attention. God doesn't know you're in trouble. Or you're going to tell someone, actually, this God does bad stuff too, and, and that shouldn't change your view of God. That's hard. All of them are hard. But ultimately, what we're saying is that you have to get rid of the idea that God is all good, which that could mean many things. It could mean that actually good isn't what we think it is. Evil isn't what we think it is. Could mean that good and evil both have a purpose. Could mean that it's different for different people. There's lots of nuance there, and there's a lot of Judaism that embraces this. This is probably the one that has the most play in the Tanakh, in the prophets. It's hard. It can be very harsh, especially when you're someone who deals with a lot of suffering or a lot of suffering in the world. But it is sound. It makes sense, right, logically. All right, option three is what? One and two. One and two, right? God is good, and God is, knows what's going on, but can't fix it, right? So this is God who's slightly incompetent. And, and don't mean that in the worst way. Now, again, there's nuance to this, right? If you abandon all-powerful, it could be that you say, well, God chooses not to be all-powerful. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of a caveated one, which is to say, the world can't work if God is all-powerful, because yeah. if God is all-powerful, then there's no free will. And again, Judaism tends to have a lot of that stuff at play, which is to say God is purposely not all-powerful. But... 
it is also difficult for some people who want to believe in the idea that what makes God God is being all-powerful. And if you abandon that one, you say, well, God is all-good and all-knowing, but actually isn't all-powerful. Some people find that wildly destabilizing, right? Personally, this is where I'm at, by the way, incompetent God, because I think that's often what the Torah is talking about, right? God often can't do the things God wants to do. God often needs human help to do them. The whole idea of covenant, to me, seems like a way to deal with the fact that God actually can't do everything by themselves, and actually sometimes needs people to work together to achieve a name, which I'm okay with. I'd rather, if I have to choose one, which I think we all do, I'd rather have the God who isn't actually all-powerful, but nonetheless good and paying attention, than the God who is paying attention and could fix stuff, but actually, for whatever reason, isn't very, or sorry, knows what's going on and could fix stuff, but for whatever reason isn't very good from our point of view, or the God who doesn't even know what's going on. So if you have to choose one of three, uh, to me, that's the one that makes the most sense. How about you guys? I'm, I'm definitely of the, it's all good, it's all knowing, but we have free choice, and if you just, if, it's like if I, if I just pray, I want this, I want that, and it's like a genie, just magically happens, then what's the point of life? Right. Like, that would not, that would not be a very good life. There's also, there's also a piece of this that comes very much into Kabbalah and Hasidut in Judaism, which is the idea that God has pathos, right? A Greek word for feeling and emotion, meaning that when we are suffering, God is suffering too, which I think actually is, is one of the better ways to approach suffering, is to say, well, God is with you in suffering. Rather than causing it, or rather than not knowing what's going on, God is actually kind of suffering along with you. A lot of that comes from the Kabbalistic ideas that, you know, when the Israelites were exiled, God was exiled too which I find the least offensive of the three. But I, that's not to say, by the way, that you have to agree with me, because you don't. And I think there's a lot of merit to be said for all three of these. But in reality, if you want to have a sound and cohesive theodicy and understand why there's suffering in the world, and if someone comes up to you and say, why do bad things happen to good people? You kind of have to choose one of these approaches. Either you're going to tell that person, God doesn't really know what's going on, and, and maybe we can draw attention to that. Maybe we can focus energy on that. This is kind of the social justice approach often, which is to you know, kind of draw people's awareness of a situation, draw God's awareness. This approach is sorry, a little bit different, I suppose, in kind of changing how people think about God, going, well, God isn't necessarily always focused on good. Evil and good all coexist from God's point of view. And this approach is more focused on the idea that actually... God isn't necessarily there to fix all your problems, and maybe there's things that you have to do, or maybe there's ways we can work together, and more of an idea, I think, of covenant. But all three have merits, and all three exist in Judaism. Just as everywhere along this spectrum exists in Judaism, just as every iteration of God of the Torah, God of the rabbis, God of the philosophers, and God of the Kabbalists exists in Judaism, and all of them coexist, peacefully or not, I'm not sure, at the same time, within what we call Judaism. Right? So when we question or we think about what is God, it's really hard to give an answer because actually you have a lot of answers at your disposal. I think some are better than others, but there's no one approach that is definitely and definitively Jewish every time and in every instance. There's lots of tendencies towards a type of monotheism, whether that's this one or that one, and a reasonable understanding of monotheism and how that relates to evil. And I think if you kind of pick, well, I'd rather be around here, and I like this one, then you start to put together a, a theology for yourself in a personal sense. And you can start to think about actually how does that affect what it means to pray? How does that affect what it means to perform mitzvot? How does that affect what it means to read the Torah and understand God through that? 
everything about Judaism is then affected by what your personal orientation is towards this. And it might change and evolve and, and sometimes maybe backslide, it might feel like. But it's worth spending the time to think about because I can't just tell you Judaism believes God is this thing because whatever you think God is, it's that and probably a bunch of stuff more.